Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and today I'm joined by security experts who will introduce themselves. And if you can offer 99% of Americans a cybersecurity tip based on the Pew Cybersecurity quiz results. Sure. Uh, This is Mike Buckby, and my tip would be that just because you're in a web browser and it has a green lock on it, that does not mean that the website's safe. You should still check the domain and make sure it's actually the one for the website that you're trying to reach. Hi, this is Killian, and kind of an extension of what uh, Mike said, I think if there's any doubt at all about the security, you have to assume it's insecure. So any of the networks you connect to, uh, especially publicly, the Starbucks or wherever you're at, Just because it has a password, don't assume that it's a secure connection. So don't do your banking at the coffee shop, I guess. And this is Mike Thompson. And my security tip is to always check the sender on suspicious emails. A lot of times they'll do some creative naming conventions to try and trick you into thinking it's legitimate. But, you know, always scrutinize anything that looks fishy. So the quiz really shows that I think we do a good job of educating the public about passwords. What was surprising to me is that most people, they're able to identify phishing attacks, even though we see article after article that phishing is an effective way for hackers to scam us. So maybe the security experts who says for us to stop blaming the users really are on to something. What were some of the results you were surprised by from the quiz? I think for me, one of the most surprising ones was just around some of the two-factor authentication. Not that I was surprised that the public in general wasn't quite aware of it, but just it was kind of difficult for them to readily identify what we mean. And Being in the security space, and probably most of our listeners talk about this all the time, so it's almost second nature, but what shocked me more than anything was just the something that's a a very understood concept in the security world wasn't understood very well by the general public and why it's important. So CAPTCHA, the little secure image on the website when you go to sign in so you know it's your image, you're not signing into a Forge website for phishing attacks, that's not what we mean by two-factor. Having something you know, for example, like your password and something you have, like a token, would be two-factor. And I think as we rely more and more on digital communication for you know banking and, and whatever else, it's going to become really important for the general public to start to understand this and to start to embrace it. It's an extra layer of security um, to avoid some kind of easier problems like getting your password stolen. Hey, did you guys take the quiz? Yeah. Yes. Killian got all of his 10 questions, right? Yeah, that's uh, probably, this is the only time in my life that I can claim to be in the 1%. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ashamed to admit that I I missed one. I I got them all right, but there were, I think there's a degree of luck in there because some of them were a little confusing. Knowing... Knowing how all of us think on this, I think there's some where we would argue with the people and which ones are the right answers. Like, which of these is the most secure password? Like, I don't know. Like, it could we we're talking about entropy and how many stuff. And that doesn't actually make it that much more secure. Yeah. I was surprised at, the, at how few people correctly identified what ransomware is, given, mm-hmm. given how much we think about it and talk about it. But only 39% of people who took this correctly identified ransomware as what a horrible thing to have happen to people. Like, no wonder people are paying these these ransoms. They're just, like, caught entirely off guard about it. 
That's why I keep on saying like you guys are more security minded. I'm kind of bringing the 99% of thinking to you guys because I, I just don't think people are that aware. So in the quiz, there was a question that asked whether or not Americans knew that they can legally obtain a free credit report annually because there's so much financial fraud. And so financial institutions, they have a few new surprising plans. First, Wells Fargo, they made huge news by announcing cardless ATMs. So what you do is you request an eight-digit code along with your PIN to get some cash. And security was a major consideration for making this change. Do you think hackers are already working on ways to work around this? What are some of the security implications of this new process? For me, I, I think it's going to be fantastic. One of the big things I think they're trying to get around, and I, I believe that they were taking into consideration, was credit card skimming. And I'm Probably about 99% sure it's happened to me when I paid at a PayStation in a parking deck, actually not too long ago, that they had a skimmer on the, um, the PayStation. Pretty much the only thing I, uh, I did within a couple weeks, and then I had a crazy charge uh, on my account that I found, and I'm fairly certain it was, it was that. But I think that's fantastic. It's so easy anymore to do that. They've gotten really creative with skimming the cards as you put them into the, you know, the ATM machines or the PayStations, things like that. So I thought that was really cool. And in, in some ways, I mean, having a card, which is something you have, and your PIN code, something you know, is, you know, you can argue is two-factor in that case. But I think having it on your device, on your, you know, mobile phone, having kind of a second PIN and your phone, and then, you, of course, your actual card PIN, adds an extra layer of, of security. You don't have to physically interact with the, uh, with the machine at that point. So it's a little bit harder to, to steal the card. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is something I'm going to need to see in practice before I can really weigh the the pros or cons of it. It's it's interesting. It certainly seems nice in an emergency, you know, not having to necessarily have your card on you. I mean, to me, like I I, I have an, I'm an iPhone user. I have Apple Pay on my device, and I think that is uh you know that's magical for me. I really like being able to authenticate with my fingerprint. I feel like that's pretty secure. I, I use it everywhere I can. So that kind of, or I'm already kind of used to this model of, you know, maybe my car doesn't necessarily have to come into play, but I'm not sure how a pin code, how that works, what that's really going to be like in practice. I was going to say there's online systems that are very similar to this now. I think uh, American Express had something that was very similar to this where you could pay online with the American Express and then you get like a text message and you put in the code. This is, yes, I, I, I do actually want to. Hi, Sammy. Um, and it says, yes, you do actually want to make this charge. I, I think that would be awesome. I think that would be much, much more secure. I mean, I think that's a great parallel with the, with the Apple Pay or the Android Pay, depending on which platform you use. But if they do incorporate uh, the biometrics in the scanner, I think that would be even better in terms of security. Because it's just one extra layer. You know, something you are, something you have, and something you know. It's kind of all three of the multi-factor pillars. Outside the U.S., in the U.K., they're getting a new coin, and they're using a technology called Integrated Secure Identification System, where that coin can be authenticated at a super high speed. So what do you think about this new coin? Is it worth investing so much time and money in making these coins harder to copy, like you have to create new machines in addition to the coin? I thought it was interesting in that we talk about security by design. And most of the time, that's a very 
technical network sort of heavy system. But this was really interesting to me because uh, it's something that I think a lot more people uh, can relate to, but it still embodies a lot of those same things where one of the design constraints was the security of this had to happen very quickly. They had to very quickly be able to identify that these are legitimate coins. They needed a way to, to make the coins where it could have a consistent signature that could be read, but they couldn't easily be copied. And this has a lot of parallels with hash functions, which uh, are the mathematical function where you put uh, an input in and you get out this seemingly random looking result, but it's consistent. Like if you put an A, you get in like a whole bunch of stuff. You put in B, you get a wildly different looking set of values. And it's almost a physical match to that. So I thought it was interesting for those reasons. Yeah, you don't often think about, you know, something seemingly so low tech being able to have, you know, built in essentially hardware security features. I, I'm, I, I didn't realize what a problem counterfeiting was of, of your, you know, pound coins. Uh, I guess, you know, we don't value coins as much in the United States. So it's not something I considered uh, that would be so heavily counterfeited. But uh, I imagine there's a huge economic concern there for them. So it, even though it's a huge investment in this, the new coins, a huge investment in technology for people who accept the coins. Hopefully, this is a long-term thing that continue to provide security. It's not something that might be easily uh, counterfeited in the future. I actually have a bit of a confession to make around uh, counterfeiting in that uh, I've been taking Susan B. Anthony dollars and telling the coins and telling my daughter that they're tooth fairy coins uh, when I put them under her <laughs> bed. When she loses teeth, my grandma gave me a roll of them, I don't know, 20 years ago, and I've had them in the closet. So I pull them out and they're still shiny. And she's like, ooh, these are great tooth fairy coins. <laughs> <laughs> Someday she'll, she'll realize that she's been duped and you know probably opt for this type of <laughs> royal mint security. But until then, we're so having a good time. She, she doesn't listen to the podcast? She does not. She would think this is incredibly boring. There's very few unicorns, very few transformers. It's, uh, it's a mess. She's going to try to dupe you one day. She already does. She's she's a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> so let's talk of, about a few things that weren't on the quiz. First, what are some rules or best practices when it comes to installing browser extensions? Because, Mike, you also found this article where these bad guys, they'll rewrite your search results with tech support phone numbers in your Google search. And this ad work where called Crusader is basically listening and modifying the user's traffic at all times. And but to be fair, it does have like a permissions notification sign where it says that it can read and change all your data on the websites you visit. What's happening is that there are a lot of different Chrome extensions out there and other browsers too, but primarily Chrome. And what bad people will do is either package up and promote their own extension that's for an innocuous use. Like, hey, we'll automatically find coupons for you on your favorite sites. We'll take screenshots of the whole web browser for you if you need to do that. We'll do this, you know, we'll be a calculator, we'll be some little utility. And then in the background, with the type of permission scopes that are needed, they ask for read and change your data on all the websites you visit. And that's exactly the same permission you would need for a extension that would take screenshots of your web browser as you would if you were writing a malicious thing that would, you know, rewrite all of your URLs to horrible things or swap out all the ads and put in the malware ads and things. And 
just as an example of how bad this can get, this adware was actually going a step further and that if someone tried to research how would I get rid of this? What would I do? They were rewriting the phone numbers of the places you would call for tech support. So you couldn't actually call and get tech support. Just, I thought that was, I thought that was insanely smart and horrible at the same time. It seems really obvious now that we know it, but I mean, for, for those of our listeners who remember trying to help, you know, your friends or relatives in the, you know, mid to late nineties with 50 million uh, browser plugins clogging up their internet explorer, I'm surprised that that this type of idea wasn't put into place earlier. And even uh, in some other respects, I'm surprised that they made it as potentially malicious as they have so far, because it seems like it could fly under the radar a lot easier if it didn't try and take that extra step and be a little bit more malicious by injecting the the bogus phone numbers that will redirect you to their um, tech support scams. If they just used it to kind of replace ads on your browsing, it seems like a tremendous way to make a lot of money and really fly under the radar. I think most people would not notice if the you know bottom uh, banner ad on their website was advertising something different than they thought. I think it's kind of a little bit of a black box for people that they don't understand kind of the targeted advertisement. So an ad for you know paper towels re- being replaced by an ad for, uh, I don't know, napkins would would be missed by most people. You know, big napkin always coming in, trying to get my ad space on my site, taking over with their, you know, two-ply goodness. But it, it really is a problem. And it has gotten to a point where they are much more sophisticated, where I had an issue where I kept seeing uh, Taboola, which is an ad network. Like if you've ever seen those ads at the bottom, like, hey, from around the web, you know, look at this person's hair extensions. Like those type of ads were being injected into pages where they shouldn't have been. And I was seeing it in the console and I tracked it down to one of these extensions. And then I wasn't sure which of two extensions it was. So I started them both up in a clean browser. And it turned out neither of them were doing the behavior. So it had some sort of adaptive, oh, like I only turn on after so long or only on certain sites or only that there was enough logic in it that could be, you know, loaded up to, to try to skirt around some of that stuff. I'm hesitant to install really most browser extensions uh, other than Adblock. But, um, you know, I think something that's kind of concerning to me about this is like, you, you think browser extensions, they kind of seem innocuous on the surface, right? Like it's not a full application. It's just like piggybacking on some other utility I use. And for people who just view the internet as a service that's provided to them, they, they're not always thinking that they need to be vigilant about stuff like that. You know, it's just, oh, this is just something that's making my life easier on the internet. Don't really think about the fact that I could completely hijack your entire experience. So, you know, I, I imagine it's like driving a car on a highway and then thinking, oh, I can't necessarily trust the road signs on this highway. Like, you know, I need to make sure this is legitimate. Like, that's crazy. You know, you just want to be able to trust what's in front of you. And for a lot of people, they're not thinking about approaching their their browsing activities that way. It reminds me of that Bitmoji app where you can create like a cartoon character version of yourself. And in order to install that app as a keyboard, it alerts you and says, we can read every single thing you type. And it's kind of funny how just vague, what does that mean when they're reading every single thing that we're typing or and I wonder what they're really doing in their background, in the background. Well, so I, I think that brings up a good point. Like how the general term for those permission blocks is called scopes. So that 
oftentimes, like if you've ever been on a site and it says, hey, this site wants you to log in with Facebook and you click it and then there's a bulleted list of like, all right, well, this will let you see the email. This will write to your wall. This, you know, will see your friends. Like each of those are different scopes. So when the developers are putting this together, they're able to pick and choose from the scopes that Facebook makes available. The same way that Chrome extension developers have to pick and choose from the scopes that Google makes available in Chrome. And, you know, Apple has to has certain scopes that, you know, keyboards and everything else are. And the two things I would really hope for are one, that these would be much more granular and that it become much more in context that, that, Hey, okay, it's, you're, it's allowed to use this, but it, needs to be, you know, whitelisted or asked for on each new site uh, or each new app. And that can be really annoying, but I think it's really the only way to keep a lot of the stuff secure. It remi- it reminds me, I was watching Michael Moore's Where We Should Invade Next, and he showed how in Europe, their taxes, they itemize every single dollar where their taxes are going. So if you pay like state taxes, they'll tell you it goes to like the fire department, roads, policemen, hospital. That Yeah, I feel like it really helps to have like an itemized list of exactly what's being done. Yes, you're reading all my data, but what are you doing with it? Another item that wasn't on the quiz was about the dangers of IoT devices. And this is a long-standing debate we have on our show. And I feel like Killian secretly trying to prove Mike Buckby wrong that having devices connected to the internet is a bad thing by sharing all these articles to talk about on the show. So there is a industrial dishwasher that's connected to the internet that's problematic. Tell him, Killian. <laughs> tell tell Mike Buckby why it's so bad. I don't think this was secret. I think <laughs> Killian spends like days a week just like, how can I prove Mike wrong? How can I show the world that he's a moron? <laughs> and I'm here to tell you, Killian, you don't you don't need to spend that much time. People know this already. It's not it's not a real challenging thing. There's there's a lot of mustache twirling and hand wringing that goes into this. <laughs> you know this this mustache you know doesn't uh, doesn't get this curly by itself. I'm just saying, got the snidely whiplash. But it, this article cracked me up because I know we talk about uh, this kind of thing a lot. And to make light of something we kind of talked about the other week, uh, and I said this to Cindy that I guess the, in this case the microwave isn't spying on you, but the dishwasher could spam you at this point. And it's it, it's just such a funny thing to build in a web server into an industrial dishwasher to check the status of it. I don't know really what all the functions supposed to be. Oh, like, so I'll, I'll take this. Yeah. It, this is an industrial dishwasher, but it's not a dishwasher like, like at a restaurant. It was a piece of lab equipment. And so it. it was a piece of lab equipment. And so after you're done like working with your viruses and you're done working with your, you know, horrible bacteriophages, you know, you clean this stuff out and you put in this like sterilizing dishwasher and then it has to run these certain like crazy cycles to, to, to clean things in a particular way. And it was networked. And so instead of it being a serial connection or something else, it was networked to let people have alerts and, to, you know, configure it and do all this stuff. And that's why it had that. So it's something that would, you know, be within your network. And it had these bugs, but you would have to be on the same physical network as it to, you know, get in and do these things. And while it's weird that it's a dishwasher, <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's weird for those same sort of reasons that this is how a lot of IoT stuff is, that it works just on your local network. 
if it's not making external calls, that's a good barrier and that uh, it had functionality for this use. See, they're really missing the point. I usually just leave my Petri dishes with fire samples in the break room, <laughs> figure Jan <laughs> also come along or somebody and wash it with my coffee mug. You know, missed opportunity on their part. They spent all this money for a dishwasher. And... I thought you brought in hummus for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, hummus is spicy and kind of, is that a little black plague taste I get in the back of my mouth? I, I mean, the, the interesting thing though, Mike, to, I mean, it's, it's, really is kind of funny and I, I just found this article a little bit amusing but it's i understand the point of it like it is useful for what it does but here's again a, a an industrial equipment manufacturer kind of entering into this and kind of the the point that i really took home from it is that they never even considered this there's no way to report a bug in their in their product because they just it never crossed their mind they're not software developers and it's one of those little kind of one more chip away at the security space in an organization. It's one more foothold that an attacker could exploit. Um, it is internal, so they'd have to kind of get inside already. Although, as we've seen with phishing and other types of attacks, that's not necessarily a challenge anyway. But it's one more place that they can set up and exploit um, within a network that, that people won't think about. I mean, there are even some obvious things that people don't really think about securing, much less an industrial uh, dishwasher. Uh, Mike Buckby has, like, a bunch of Teslas, and he's trying to tempt <laughs> Killian with them. And, and Killian's like, no, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm good with my good old truck. But Elon, he's going to invest in this thing called Neuralink. I have no idea what that is, but supposedly there are supposed to be electrodes that's going to be implanted in our brains, and then it's supposed to connect wirelessly to computers. Elon has a software back. He used to code. So he's aware and he has the resources to build security and and perhaps even privacy into the system. But, you know, we're talking about our brains and, and being able to, I don't know, read people's thoughts. What's going on through your head when you think of brains connecting wirelessly to computers? First off, Cindy, I just want to make it known that my truck gets 15 rods to the hog's head, and that's the way I likes it. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't need any of this newfangled electricity you guys have to run my car. And I just want to know, and I hand out Teslas as stocking stuffers, so. I was just going to say podcast pays better than I thought. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's big podcast money. I really thought this uh, article was really, really interesting. Considering, well, today we're recording, it's the 31st. Uh, I don't know if anybody on the podcast or listening when it goes out is going to see Ghosts in the Shell, which I think came out today. And I just watched the the original movie from the 90s, um, or this week. But that's kind of a big portion of it is kind of connecting your brain directly to the network and you know, when it came out in the 90s, it was super sci-fi, but, you know, not that much later in life, we're actually talking about it in the real world. And kind of as part of that, too, is, you know, the, the quote-unquote ghost hacking, kind of taking over somebody's brain, you know, implanting false memories. So it's it's something that sci-fi has kind of covered many different ways over the years, but it's really kind of interesting the benefits that it could have, too. You know, maybe I'll, I'll play Mike's part a little bit, you know, what's the harm? My new catchphrase is, what's the hogshead? So. <laughs> oh, I just don't want to be the, the first idiot to, uh, to not update my, my brain firmware and then uh, be the first brain, you know, Internet of Things connected brain being hijacked. So that's what I'm worried about. But imagine the learning potential, you know, 
we wouldn't have to spend uh, all that time to become you know race car drivers and drive uh, Mike's Tesla when we can just upload it and uh, be able to rip around the Nürburgring or something. This is going to sound like a weird tangent, but when I was much younger and I found about spreadsheets for the first time, I thought they were amazing. And I thought they were amazing because it really felt like this whole other portion of my brain that was in this spreadsheet that could like keep all this stuff straight and could allow me to organize my thoughts better and to try and like twist them around and, and play with stuff. And I was never great at math, but I was great at spreadsheets. And so suddenly it felt like this like mental superpower that was just dumped on me. And nothing has quite come close to that ever since as far as tools, but a lot of stuff has continued to do that. Like, you know, I have an iPhone. It has, you know, all these features built into it that I use all the time. And, you know, this came about as this whole series of steps. And I think, you know, Neuralink, it's way in the future. This is not something we need to be concerned about. But I think it is interesting to think about because it's it's a crisp thing that's down the road. But every day we have a little bit uh, of a step towards that where, you know, we have smartphones, they track us everywhere, but we say, hey, that's fine because we still we still need that to happen. We, you know, use all these communication systems that uh, are insecure in multitude of different ways, but they're easy and we're generally OK with that. It's interesting to has this sort of visceral thing of like, oh, it's going to be in my head. Well, I don't think I want that. But then you find out like that's how you get the new Bitmoji and you're like, yes, I got to have this Neuralink in my head to get the new Bitmoji. It's going to be a, a lot of steps, but there needs to be the thought in it at every step of the way. So. Man, Mike, this spreadsheet thing, I'm just learning all sorts of new stuff about you. <laughs> he waved his hands in his all up in the air and he was gesturing. Yeah, it's too bad this isn't a video podcast anymore. You could see my cool gestures. So. <laughs> We might have to get T-shirts, you know, like Mike's face, like, you know, spreadsheet master or something. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's a giveaway for the future. Nobody else likes spreadsheets, so. Oh, I love spreadsheets. Let's see. Spreadsheets are cool. She'd wear this T-shirt. Man, I'm going to have a booming T-shirt business to go along with my big <laughs> podcast money. <laughs> Wait, Mike can have his own Bitmoji app, Mike Expressions. Yeah, that's my my new app is just going to be a spreadsheet that you can only input emojis to, and then you. It, <laughs> we laugh now, but it's going to sell to Facebook in like two months for you know, <laughs> multi billions. Most high level math is really just symbolic logic anyway. This is really symbolic logic of like you know poop emoji times you know peach times you know thumbs up. We get to the whole new levels of mathematics. What's going on on Mike's corner this week? So time you listen to this, we'll have a new blog post up that's about sysadmins using Git, uh, Git, the source control system. And this is something I wrote, and it's something that comes out of a lot of discussions that I've had with sysadmins where maybe their organization doesn't want to use source control uh, for things like PowerShell scripts, for configurations, for lots of things. Um, and so this is both an argument why they should and a very gentle intro uh, to get started with using uh, some of the PowerShell extensions for Git and where to start. So please check out our blog, which also looks awesome now. It looks so much cooler. It looks like a, a fancy magazine website. So blog.veronis.com. So. 
Thanks, Mike Buckby, Killian, Mike Thompson, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you have a moment, please go on to iTunes to leave us a rating so that it'll help others find our podcast. And we'll put you in the running for a deck of our popular IT cards. By the way, there are 72 cards in the deck. And to find some of the stories we're discussing, you can find us on Twitter at infosec underscore podcast. And thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.